The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. This is episode two of the Garden Question podcast. Gail Woody is an expert in enticing butterfly kaleidoscopes to her garden. She knows what they like and how to keep them happy year-round. She has been studying these flying jewels for many years and regularly attracts up to 38 different species to her garden. Monarch butterflies are regular visitors twice a year on their migration trek from Mexico and Canada. In this episode, Gail will also tell us how to attract and keep all the local butterflies coming to your place. Some with 6 to 8 inch wingspans and stories about giant 8 to 10 inch caterpillars. Gail has been gardening for over 30 years. She creates the perfect ecosystem that includes butterflies, hummingbirds, native plants, water features, and more. Her passion for gardening is contagious. After listening to this episode, there will be no excuses not to start building your own butterfly paradise. Gail Woody is an ISA certified arborist and a seasoned advanced master gardener. She speaks and writes on butterflies, hummingbirds, native plants, among other garden subjects. If you want to learn how to attract your personal butterfly kaleidoscope, that today's podcast is perfect for you. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. Yeah, I'm often in a garden somewhere and inevitably there'll be a butterfly that'll fly by and there's something about that butterfly that makes you just want to stop in your tracks and just demand your attention. What is it about butterflies that have that effect on us? I think other than the fact that it looks like flowers with wings flying around, I think a butterfly signifies everything nature is. All of the changes in your garden, the metamorphosis of a butterfly, butterfly just, they mean so much to me. I've read that it's like the Texas border, the Rio Grande, and you went north. There's, there's over 750 butterfly species in that area. In our area, Georgia, about 160. How many of those species can we hope to get to our backyard? Well, Craig, I'm glad you asked that question because it might surprise you the number of species I have in my backyard. A lot of people think, like there's some at butterfly houses, you think, well, you never see those here, but I had the zebra longwing again this summer. I have the giant swallowtail. Both of those are more Florida. The zebra longwing is Florida state butterfly. And I've had those butterflies two or three years in a row because I have the host plant they need for the four things that wildlife need in your backyard. 
and we're north Florida probably at least by four hours. And so that's pretty amazing that you can attract butterfly from that part of Florida all the way up into your backyard just by having the, the plant that they're searching for. How do you know what plants they're looking for? The plants that a butterfly needs has to be a native plant to raise their young. Most butterfly species will come in your backyard and spend the day uh, nectaring. If they're looking for their host plant to lay their eggs, and that is the only host plant they lay their, each species will lay their eggs on. So we just have a wealth of information out there. You can download so many species of butterflies, showing you all the species that are native to our area. And the ones that do migrate through Monarchs Cross Georgia has some great information, not just on the monarch, but all butterfly, butterfly gardening. There's just a, a wealth of information out there to be able to find for butterfly gardening. I want to get started attracting butterflies to my home. How do I get started on that? Tell them just how easy it is to do it. The first thing that butterflies are going to look for is just almost like honeybees and other insects. Color. Because butterflies do look for color. And good nectar and plants, they uh, they love lots of different nectar and plants in the, in the summer. I have plants that are non-native. And you can attract butterflies with just uh, pots of flowers outside. You don't have to start out big. Plant a lot of good, colorful plants that you see that butterflies use for nectaring. And when you can draw insects and bees to your backyard, you will know, okay, you've started. You've got flowers in the summer. Then you want to decide that you're going to want to keep them at your house. You don't want them leaving your backyard. You want them to stay with you and not just fly away because that's what they'll do if they don't have the shrubs, trees, or the plants they need to lay eggs on because ultimately mating and laying their eggs is the goal. And then that's their goal. So uh, you want to do your research. You want to plant a tree, a pawpaw tree, uh, a wild cherry tree. Numerous butterflies lay their eggs on a wild cherry tree. You want to, uh, even in your garden, vegetables you grow attract butterflies. And see how many black swallowtails lay their eggs on your parsley. It's just absolutely amazing what you can do. Remember, they love Puddling places. This is where they get the minerals and nutrients and water they need. Butterflies love to play in the mud. And if you don't have a creek, you can make a puddling bowl. Just buy a plastic dishpan, punch some holes in it, set it down a little bit below the ground level, put dirt and sand and keep it moist in the summer. And some of the most beautiful pictures I've ever made have been in a little puddle mud spot that I created in my backyard. Puddling, you're just typically just getting some kind of saucer or any, any kind of shallow container? Yes, use some kind of plastic dish. Well, I would do a hole. I, I would put a hole in it, and that way it can drain out because if it fills up with rain, you know, it'll overflow and wash your sand and red clay. They love red clay. Think about this. A lot of our listeners probably as young people remember driving across creeks, whether it was in a vehicle, you know, on old dirt roads, and you notice all the butterflies that are on the side of the bank of that old muddy spot. And, and even creeks today, you'll see butterflies fly up when you walk across them. Well, they are getting minerals and nutrients for their bodies. If you could see that butterfly on a real heavy magnified camera, you could see them shooting the excess water out of their bottoms and keeping the minerals and uh, salts they need to survive. So 
Butterflies need water too. That's really a, that along with the host plant is really a key and it is that water and minerals. And then you've got the host plant that they're laying their eggs on. Is that right? That's right. Actually, we probably should have started by saying all insects, butterflies included, and wildlife. To have a backyard habitat for butterflies, you must have four things. You must have food, water, shelter, and a place to raise their young. Those are the four key things you need in your backyard, whether it's a butterfly or your have birds coming in and and all types of wildlife. For them to stay in your backyard, they need all four. The plants are the food that they lay their eggs on. Where they get their food, they nectar, but the real food is when that egg emerges a caterpillar. That caterpillar is going to eat all the leaves, so got to have the exact correct plant because each butterfly, some are host-specific, one host plant if you want that butterfly, you got to have that host plant. Numerous butterflies have two or three host plants that they will lay their eggs on. So there's your food. You're, you've got your beautiful flowers for them to nectar on, and they'll mate in your backyard. Then they're going to lay their eggs on the food plant for their babies. Okay. And so the babies are larva or caterpillar, right? That's right. The shelter for them, butterflies have to have a place to get under leaves of trees or shrubs if it comes a storm or raining or heavy winds. And if the temperature hasn't made it to 70 degrees, the shelter for a butterfly is hanging under leaves on trees and shrubs. Okay. So we don't need to treat these caterpillars like my dad always treated snakes. To him, every snake was a bad snake. No matter how much I tried to talk him into not killing that snake, he would always want to kill it. But caterpillars, it's kind of like every time you see a caterpillar, you want to squish it. That's right. So we don't want to do that if we want butterflies in our backyard. They're going to be some type of butterfly or maybe a moth. That's right. And moths are going to feed our birds. And understandable in some parts of Georgia, especially South Georgia, where you have your big farms, the beautiful yellow sulfurs that we have floating around that are so gorgeous. You have the dog face. I mean, we've got them during the winter. They are considered a pest in South Georgia because that's mass-produced and they love soybeans and they do a lot of damage there. For us, they do no damage. They're just beautiful. And you'll see them in early spring, all through the summer, the fall. It's just a constant butterfly here. But if you put out pesticides, you can't have a butterfly. You you can't use neem oil. You can't use insecticidal soaps. An egg won't survive it and neither will a caterpillar. We want to be careful. We want to keep our caterpillars because not only are we feeding our birds, our songbirds, we are allowing them to go into chrysalis and metamorphosize into more butterflies. It's just a continuous cycle all summer. And before you know it, you'll have more butterflies than you know what to do with. If I've got my garden and I've got caterpillars in there, what do I need to do? Just grow some extra cabbage or whatever for the butterflies? The only thing people really have much concern with, the cabbage whites and all, but um, the uh, butterfly caterpillars do very little to no damage at all. They're not the kind of caterpillars that, you know, the cabbage worms and all that eat up your cabbage. 
the uh, the main thing in Georgia people don't like is having the tomato hornworm. Mm-hmm. You know, that makes an amazing hummingbird moth. I pluck them off. I don't spray my vegetables. And a lot of people go, a home garden, people are going to that more. I understand, and I try not to criticize the big farmers who are growing food for many, many people across the nation. However, in your own backyard, you know, there's really no reason to use poisons. You're just indiscriminately killing honeybees and uh, and other wonderful insects. So my passion is to encourage people, put on a pair of gloves and pluck them off if you don't like the tomato hornworms. I certainly don't like them eating up my tomato plants either. So I pluck most of them and pitch them out in the yard for birds to save my tomato plants. But never, ever do I ever put insecticidal oils or anything on them, especially wanting to, to have a nursery. I have a butterfly nursery literally in my backyard, and I would like for four people to strive to do that as well. What is a butterfly nursery? That means you've got everything that butterfly needs. You've got food in your backyard. You have water for them in your backyard. You have a place for them to seek shelter and a place to raise young. You've got a nursery. In the summer, children come, and I have pictures of them with caterpillars on their face and vines that are hanging in caterpillars and butterflies that are mating and seeing them lay eggs and knowing and counting the days and knowing when the eggs will emerge and there will be a caterpillar. And then in no time, there's chrysalis hanging all over our patio furniture. They emerge and the cycles just continue. And if you have that going on in your backyard, you have a butterfly nursery. How many cycles can you get? For some reason, I thought it was just like one cycle per year, but how many cycles can you get? Quite a few, because it doesn't take long to be able to have your butterflies. So, you know, in three or four weeks, Max, you've started all over again and see them out here mating again and again. Gofritillaries, just a continuous cycle. Tiger swallowtail, Georgia State butterfly, the black swallowtail. I also have the most, absolutely most beautiful butterflies in the uh, brushfoot family. You have the uh, red-spotted purple, the viceroy, that lay their eggs on a wild cherry tree. And uh, they'll they'll have a couple of cycles a year. And also, monarchs are the ones that come through in the spring. You've got to have milkweed for them. They'll lay their eggs in the spring. They will emerge here. I will bring them in so I can release them in the spring and enjoy them. And they'll do that two or three weeks in a row. I'll have a continuous cycle of monarchs for a while. Then they'll go all the way up to Canada. They don't come back until the fall. And when they come back in late September, here we go again. I've got to have my milkweed good and fresh. I cut it off, let the new stalks come up, have it all up in time for the next cycle coming. As long as you have the plants out here, they will continue in your backyard to raise their babies. You've done some interesting things with the monarchs. And we have these migration patterns. We know they said, well, they go up to Canada and We know they go to Mexico. Is it multiple generations doing this, or is it one butterfly making that whole trek to Canada or a whole trek from to Mexico? How do you know that? Let's start with the ones that are right now on the tree in Mexico, okay? We'll start out with those. Those migrated down in the fall, and I tagged 90 of them and sent them on their way. So they're down there on the trees, and of course, I've been there in January and February with them. They start coming back here, and when they start their migration back, they start turning loose uh, late February, early March, and heading back this way. Some 
make it all the way back to our area here in West Georgia. Most do not. Most are at U.S. or Mexican border, lower Texas, Florida, uh, even the lower Gulf Coast, and they will end up mating laying eggs there. And actually, they're mating in February and March when they leave. I've seen them mating down there and even seen chrysalis hanging down there in March. When they start up the U.S. coast, most of the time that one don't make it. It does some, but not always. It depends on when you see a monarch in your backyard in spring and it, like in March and it looks really bad and tattered and it, it about to die, you know that one probably made it all the way from the Machoacan mountain range. But uh, let's say it didn't, where the, the vast number don't make it all the way to this West Georgia area, and you have a monarch come lay eggs, they will keep laying eggs and die. The ones that emerge is going to be your second generation. They'll emerge here in my backyard. Before they make it all the way to Canada, they have stopped. They stop, of course, in nectar. They stop and breed. They lay eggs again. By the time they make it to Canada, most of the time, it's four generations from the one that I saw on the trees in Mexico. They go a long way, but they are up to four generations there. When they head back, most of those coming out of Canada are news, new uh, butterflies. They make it up to 2,800 to 3,000 miles all the way back to Mexico. Many stop, lay eggs again like they do here. And I have a lot of eggs laid, raise a lot of monarchs on my back porch, send them on to Mexico. And those don't go quite as far as many thousands of miles. But the ones that leave West Georgia in the fall, they're headed straight for the mountain range. They'll be newer than most of the others because of the difference. The same for Texas and that area. There'll be some that are just coming to West Georgia and turning around and going back, or are all of them trying to get, if they're on their northern migration. All are trying to get to Carrollton. I mean, I'm sorry. All of them in the spring. Yeah, they're all trying to get to me. All of them in the spring, their goal is to head north. Always. They go north for the summer. And we will have months here where unless there's a monarch been released, like, you know, somebody purchased some eggs or, or chrysalis, we will have hot summer months. Monarch is not something you see in this garden. I guess that's the reason I jump up. I'll be at the kitchen table looking out and I'll just can tell by the way the wings move. I will run fast as I can to see my first monarch in the fall. So you, we've gone several months without a monarch. So seeing them when they arrive in late September is just, oh my, <laughs> it's unreal. <laughs> <laughs> it's like my, my babies have come home and even though they're not here yeah. except for just to drop off and start laying eggs, they, you know, sometimes they don't make it very long here, but the monarchs that make it to Mexico, live up to nine months. And butterflies in our backyard, our native butterflies here of those 160 species, live maybe two weeks. There puts into perspective just how absolutely unbelievable monarch is, not to mention the fact it is the only migrating butterfly that we know of that leaves, really? you know, on oh. such a migratory path. Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, we have butterflies, the sulfurs that go a little further south where it's a little bit warmer. But our Georgia native butterfly, the uh, tiger swallowtail, she leaves her chrysalis here in the winter, and it's on um, 
side of a maple or side of any tree, but mostly poplars is where you'll, it's very difficult to see because it looks like a little broken piece of branch. Mm -hmm. But that's why you see our tiger swallowtail so soon because we have numerous chrysalis I have out here now hanging off the side of pots and pans in my shed Uh, that are chrysalis that overwinter here. So that's something a monarch does not do. It does not overwinter here. It leaves the country and goes to a perfect microclimate on the mountain range in uh, the middle of Mexico. Huh. That's amazing. That's really amazing. Mm -hmm. It surely is. Our native butterflies, what, what is their range? Do they, like from your backyard... Would they just pretty much hang there, or are they going to go a couple of miles away, or what? What kind of range are we well, looking at? Well, they will if I don't if I don't have what they need. They're going to go a couple of miles away. My neighbors all complain. They say the reason they don't have butterflies and hummingbirds is because they're all in Gail Woody's backyard. <laughs> <laughs> That's what everybody says. Oh boy. But but truly, it is about having. It's it's just. It's about having what they need in the backyard and having, you can have plants and you can buy plants at, at places, you know, at the, the bedding plants and so forth. But I mean, zinnias is something that's not native. They're, they're not invasive. They are only annuals. They only last for the summer. I pick my seeds if I can beat the goldfinch to them. I keep my seeds reseed because they are such a favorite of uh, every species of butterfly loves them. And some of the prettiest pictures in the world and more species than sometimes I can't even keep up with all of them that are out here. But then, of course, you've got your butterflies that do not care for flowers, believe it or not. We've got some magnificent butterflies that really you need to throw your old watermelon, cantaloupe rind, and grapevine, old dried-up grapes, and scuppernongs, and actually even love animal dung. So I keep a special place for those butterflies. We We really have some amazing butterflies that just go straight to rotted fruit. So I have those in my backyard. Red spotted purple is is one folks could look that up and it would blow their mind. And you come closer to seeing it in a cow pasture than in your own backyard unless you leave some old rotted fruit out for it. However, we have so many native plants and, and asters crepe. We just have in the fall, there's goldenrod, tremendous amount of beautiful native plants to attract butterflies to your yard. If you were going to have just rotted fruit, say, on your back porch or whatever, would that draw butterflies in? Or do you still have to have host plants? Or Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's only two or three species that I draw in with that. And I make sure I keep it at the edge of the yard for the purpose of you don't want to attract Yellow jackets, and it will attract yellow jackets as well. Yeah. So I have some beautiful pictures of those butterflies with yellow jackets, but it's still a, a beautiful photo, and it just brings more of them in. You gotta have the, uh, you gotta have flowers for all but three or four species in our area need color. Just in, instead of having a, a whole backyard starting out, I would recommend choose your place, make a spot if you need to remove grass or whatever you need to do. Maybe make a six by six foot area and plant some seeds, let it come up from seeds, zinnias, asters. And of course, get on the native plant website and the Department of Natural Resources tells you butterfly by butterfly. It tells you what host plant it loves to lay eggs on. 
nectar plants. I mean, they'll nectar on almost anything. I've seen bananas. Would that be like the same thing as, as the rotten fruit you're talking about if you just put a banana or banana peel, something like that? Yes, absolutely. Yes, the Viceroy loves it. Checker spots love it. Risbody purple, it's one of their favorites to have out there too. So I just keep all the rotted fruit and peelings and so forth and just make me an area where I keep it. And it's away from, you know, where I'm attracting any kind of unwanted insects. You'll have wasp on it and yellow jackets on it and honeybees will get on it as well. So it's kind of a neat trick to do too. And I guess you're composting too at the same time, aren't you? Absolutely. Oh, one thing about but to the monarchs, and this is what I've wondered, is I've heard of people tagging butterflies, tagging monarchs. To me, in my mind, when I think about that, I think their aerodynamics are just going to mess up when you put any kind of tag on them, I would think, in my mind. But I'm sure, I know that's not true because you've tagged them. How do you tag a monarch butterfly? I let them dry out when I raise them before I tag them, of course, let the wings get good and dry. And there's a particular place on the uh, back of their wings. I just hold them up. Uh, We catch them off of plants, of course. And I hold them up with my index finger and my thumb and hold their wings together. You're not going to hurt them. Just gently hold them. And there is a place in the black line on each side of the wing underneath looks like a child's mitten. There is a place where you put the tag. They don't care. It doesn't bother them. They'll just fly away as fast as I release them. The tag has information. It has numbers on it. You have a tagging sheet. Each tag I pull, I write the information on it. I tell whether or not I raised it or if I caught it in the wild, whether it's a male or a female. And you can tell because the male on a monarch has a black little round pheromone uh, spot. You would be able to see if you brought up a male and female monarch, you'd be able to see the black place and recognize it and start recognizing the male from the female. And you put the tiny tag on, I kiss her by <laughs> and let her go. And she'll go up <laughs> in the air in my backyard. She'll go around and around and get her bearings. And then she heads southwest so fast. It was just, it's so funny to watch them. You only do it in the fall. You don't want to do that in the springtime. You shouldn't have tags in the spring. If I have leftover tags, you you know, I trash them. But what we do when we go to Mexico, we collect those. We give the people down there money. They have only certain people are allowed in that federal biosphere where the monarchs are. We, they call them the night fairies. And these people go in and this helps their livelihood because they're very, very poor people. They are the ones that are allowed to go in and carefully collect the mark with the tags on them that have fallen on the floor. You can't touch any in the air and all. Any that die fall off the trees. You collect them and you find out if your mark made it to the overwintering grounds. That's pretty, pretty neat. Hmm. Do you have any idea how many of yours have made it? No, I've not been told, but a friend of mine in um, Plains, Georgia, they mm-hmm. sent her tag back to her, so she's a little further south than us. No, I've never, and we purchased so many this past February. You wouldn't believe how many we bought and brought back, but nobody contacted me yet. A hundred is about the most I've ever been able to catch and tag. The Eastern Seaboard of Monarchs, we don't have the amount that come down the middle of our country. Mm-hmm. Down the Ohio Valley, right in the middle of the country, crossing Texas, they have millions compared to us. So in our area, for me to tag a hundred is a big deal. 
I don't get to do the amount they do. Yeah. So the odds are against me. I have banded a hummingbird that was located and I got the call that that hummingbird was found two years later, but it <laughs> wasn't my monarch. I keep waiting on the monarch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It'll happen. It'll but happen. They're pretty exciting. <laughs> they're, they're so beautiful. They're, you know, butterflies are just so beautiful. They bring a smile to your face. For me, they represent hope. I mean, you know, hope for the next year, hope for uh, for them to make it. Can you imagine the yeah. dangers that butterflies crossing the highway? I mean, just flying across the road. How many folks hit a, a butterfly? They have all but the monarch. They have two weeks to survive. Give joy to nectar and uh, raise their young. And then, uh, then they start dying. And then you see all of them that get hit and animals get them and children get them. <laughs> so, you know, they are, that's, that's hope, hope that they'll make it to uh, start another generation. I didn't have any idea that butterflies were only had a, some had just a two week lifespan. I, I was thinking it was a lot longer than that. I didn't realize that. You know, the reason that, that you, that people think that they have a longer lifespan is because they're continuously laying eggs and regenerating and starting a new cycle of butterflies all summer long. They're continuously doing that. So you don't really realize how important having a host plant for them to lay their eggs on is. That makes a lot of sense. I I got a a larger appreciation for a wild cherry tree. Now I, I didn't have an appreciation for them until this conversation, because, you know, in the landscape, my thought was, well, they are not a pretty tree, but I found out today that they're really important for butterflies. And you know what else are important? What? The bagworms in the fall. The bagworms. People hate a cherry tree because of the big bagworm balls. The amount of food those worms feed uh, our birds. And another thing that we have are bats that are in trouble. Mm-hmm. Those moths are critical. And, and, you know, nobody wants that cherry tree as a specimen tree in their yard right please please if you can let them stay in the far reach of your property or wherever they are so critical for me my trees and plants and shrubs and flowers they're out there for the butterflies okay you know yeah and uh even my pipe vine i have the most magnificent pipe vine a big old dutchman pipe that is the sole plant the only thing that a pipe vine swallowtail will lay her eggs on. So by the end of the summer, that thing looks horrible, and I'm the happiest mama in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so your goal is to have your plants. Got to eat them up. That's what they're there for. And and, and it doesn't matter. They, they only nectar on the flowers. The leaves are unimportant. They do not hurt the leaves whatsoever. These uh, butterflies, they... Yeah, they got so many plants in my backyard that they eat on. And you know something else, Craig, verbenas, you know, uh, these beautiful creeping and hanging verbenas are uh, native Georgia. We have a roadside tall, stiff verbena. I have seen some of the most magnificent butterflies in the world. The flowers are like nothing, just a tiny little purple flower that it's not even that pretty or hanging, lopping down thing. And I'll see a monarch have it swaying all the way down to the ground, not just a monarch. All butterflies love it. Huh. And then you've got Joe Pie weed, iron weed. This is stuff that grows on the side of the road if it doesn't get sprayed and killed. That's some of the most beautiful monarch nectar plants possible. 
I've had Joe Pieweed pictures of it with four or five Packer swallowtails on it at one time, uh, nectaring, just covered up, just fluttering up back and forth. They don't have to have fancy plants. I mean, we can collect seeds from power lines out of the road. Your really knowledgeable and experienced uh, digging up our native plants is just a mistake because they're going to die. Right. It's rare you could ever dig one up and transplant it. But in the fall, people can economically go collect seeds and cold stratify the seeds and put those seeds out in the spring and scatter them and grow your own plants. And by cold stratifying, I mean put them in a paper sack in the refrigerator and mimic winter yeah. for them. Leave them there all winter or, and then bring them out in the spring and plant them? Or? Yes. Yes, I, I put a, I plant a lot in growing medium, and it's almost time to do that. Mm-hmm. I would definitely I leave them two or three months of mine, you know, because if you leave seeds out, they're going to wear themselves out. The heat inside your home, the heat even on the back porch, the sun porch that's heated in the sun. You, If you're not going to let them be outside, if you want to grow your own, grow your own seed and really start growing some wildflowers free. You know, you don't have to be rich to start a wildflower garden. Yeah. Now, I know you live in a subdivision. It's still rather rural, the same with me. But what if you live in a densely populated city? If I did, I'd just have pots and pots. I see people on their back porches. They have window boxes. They have a little, small little place where they have chairs sitting outside their house. Because I've lived like that before. I would just have pots on top of pots everywhere growing seed plants or plants you buy at a nursery. There's all kind of hanging baskets. Butterflies don't care. You can draw them into the tiniest little garden in the world. You truly can. And you can also have a little fountain in your backyard, a little bird bath with a fountain, and you would not believe how many insects and honeybees that'll get on that fountain and, and drink. There's much more after this. TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. If you grow the plants and the butterflies will come, you could be in the most densely populated city and have these container plants, and they'll still find their way to your backyard or your patio garden then. That's correct. They will. They'll find it. Just uh, as much color as you can pack and contain in one area, Uh, the more color, the better. That's what draws them to begin with. I I mean, I use a lot of orange, yellow, and red, but... Also have a lot of purple. We have some butterflies that are drawn to emerald. This is like people have an herb garden. You can have pots of herbs in a little patio garden, and they have the little flowers that have little flat tops on them called emeralds. And a lot of our little butterflies are drawn to that, and so are bees, and so are ladybugs. Ladybugs have to have mm-hmm. emeralds. Or they'll just fly away to my place and, and leave you. So tell people, don't buy ladybugs unless you've got the right plants to keep them. Or they just fly <laughs> away. They'll just fly away and find somebody that's got a bunch of herbs. So you want to have, I mean, you can have several pots of herbs and just blow your mind that you've also got everything 
some butterfly species need right there. All four things. They got a place to even raise their young. Um, you can buy parsley. You can buy wild, a different kind of, uh, Onion plants, allium, different beautiful uh, herbs that you can put, basils. All of these uh, herbs turn into flowers if you, you know, just grow them and pinch off the leaves and use them for cooking. But let them go to flower and they are going to attract so many mm. butterflies. Don't have to have fancy colors. No reason to grow herbs. Reason, And they don't have to. I mean, they love those white flowers. I have white flowers out here covered in butterflies. You know the old moss, I, you know the creeping moss that we have, the purple? I know that that is what I grew up with. My mother always mm-hmm. had. I have butterflies on that early spring laying on their sides nectar until they're drunk. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sight to see. They'll just be laying down on it. It's really beautiful. And, you know, that's not expensive. And it'll be the first thing in the spring you see is all that beautiful purple blooming moss. Huh. Creeping flocks. Yes, creeping flocks. And thrift. that's native. Thrift. That's what my mother used to call it, thrift. And, you know, I have woodland flocks out here, too. But you talking a magnet, you can draw them in the spring on that flocks. Like, unbelievable. And it is a free plant when you get that thing going. It will come back year after year and spreads for oh, you. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful flower in the spring yeah, and all yeah. summer too. Now you talked about that's your mom growing that. What is that your earliest garden memory, or what's your earliest garden memory? Oh, my mother. Oh, my mama grew so many beautiful plants. It's, it's kind of funny. We had gardens, big gardens, and pack. We had we raised peanuts and cotton. My childhood memories are of the cornfields and the biggest pest in the cornfield for my dad and for most corn farmers is the uh, passion vine that grows up on it. We called it the maypop. And uh, big seeds, you can eat the seeds. uh, Beautiful flowers. And it's a a native wild plant here. It's critically important to me in my backyard because species of butterflies called fritillaries. We have the spotted fritillary, great uh, spangled fritillary, the gulf fritillary, it's unbelievable the species here are fritillaries, and uh, folks can look those up, too, and see what a, a beautiful butterfly they are. But the beautiful orange guff fritillary comes here by the hundreds, and I raised the passion vines, let them grow up across the arbor. Now, my mom and dad hated them tangling up on the cornstalk, and we called them maypops. My brothers would battle and hit us with those maypops and explode them. <laughs> They're quite delicious, but the uh, gulf fritillary lays her eggs on the edge, on the very tip of the tendrils where she puts her eggs, and they will exfoliate an unbelievable arbor of the leaves of that passion flower. It has big, beautiful purple flowers, doesn't affect the flowers, doesn't affect the fact that the, you've got the seed pods for next year. And it's always the hope and promise it'll be back. But you'll never see more orange with black pointy looking little, looks like stingers, but it's just something to ward off, that protect themselves from birds getting eaten. But you wouldn't believe hundreds of those uh, fritillaries will be hanging on nothing left. I'll actually have to go to the one end of the yard, transplant caterpillars to different plants on the other end of the yard, just to try to feed them until they can go into chrysalis. I transplant caterpillars in my backyard all summer. (laughs) And the vine doesn't look so great, but oh my, my, what it does create from its beauty. You can tell, for me, it's 
it needs to have some caterpillar damage for me to really love it. <laughs> but I need to see the damage for yeah. sure. What's the one thing you can, or maybe more than one, but what's the one thing that you can contribute to the success you have with your butterfly garden? I think milkweed. I would encourage anybody, you know, to start with a milkweed garden. I mean, you could throw seeds and just, you know, get lots of flowers coming up. But with a milkweed garden, that's the only thing that a monocle egg on. The chance of her coming more than just flitting through is remote. However, a person would have to understand that the monarch, what the monarch's going to do with that has nothing to do with the flowers. We have some magnificent milkweeds that are native to our area in some just unbelievable colors, orange, yellow, deep reds, uh, a magenta purple, light pinks, so many. There is not a butterfly that won't nectar on a milkweed plant. So you're not just planting milkweed for the monarchs. That milkweed plant is just, it's feeding wasps and honeybees and every possible species of butterfly all summer long. So for me, I know it's the only thing a monarch will lay her eggs on, and that's the only butterfly that will lay her eggs on that plant. But that is a magnificent nectar plant that comes back year after year, trying, you know, to think of things that people can plant that will be their bones. You want your bones. Start mm-hmm. out with some the bones of that butterfly garden. That would be one of the things you would want to do. And like the um, creeping flocks, those can be bones, the things that will entice uh, butterflies to come back. And you don't have to plant them but one time. You get them established, they're there forever. And uh, you can count on that in the spring. I have our native petunia, and I have a sea of purple that starts in the spring. Pentsimmon, I have a, I bet I have, oh my, I can't tell you how many pentsimmon. So in early spring, my backyard is purple. And the yellow, beautiful yellow sulfurs are all over it early. The, the cabbage whites, the tiger swallowtails come in really early in March and April. And I don't even plant the zinnia seeds till late April after all danger of frost. So what you got to have is the bones that will that will get them in here because they're already getting active. Once it reaches 70 degrees, they're going to become very active in your backyard. So we just have so many native plants that they reseed. They come back on their own year after year. So you want to start out with some bones. And and I can honestly say for me, the bones is, is the milkweed plant. Because when those monarchs come through in early March, they start. They will lay eggs on plants that are not even two wow. inches out of the ground. It's, it's fascinating. If I'm understanding you correctly, your need blooms early spring to late fall. Yes, indeed. And I have sulfurs out here now. And guess what? They're on. They're on camellia blooms. The blossoms of camellias, and they're on. I have the little quince, the little orange quince yeah. flowers. They're uh, the little yellow sulfurs are out here in cold weather on those. It blows my Today, mind. Today, I think. We're probably in our 50s, and it's overcast, and had some really, really cold days before this, and and we're talking about January. You got you got butterflies in your garden. Yes, I have right now. I've got little sulfurs. They are sturdy little butterfly. Most butterflies aren't crazy about overcast, mm-hmm. and uh, usually around 10 o'clock in the morning, you let that sun come out. And uh, yeah, honestly, I have butterflies year wow. round. I mean, we have a beautiful, beautiful little blue really? azure. 
I bet a lot of people don't know where the host plant for the Blue Azure is, is our native dogwoods. Yeah. You know, that's that signifies spring to most people when they see that little, little tiny Blue Azure. Yeah, a dogwood, native dogwood. They won't, they won't lay their eggs on, on these non-native yeah. species of dogwood yet. What are you currently working on? Uh, currently, my project is uh, starting seeds, milkweed. I uh, constantly start milkweed on my back porch, and I have grow lights. I grow them in trays because storing seeds is just that sketchy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really difficult. I mean, I know some milkweed come up from seeds out here, but I collect my seeds. That way I grow them little containers. I don't buy those little hard cups. About like peat pots? Yeah, that's. I guess that is peat, isn't it? And they're very hard. The thing about um, milkweed is I would discourage anybody from doing that. I do the milkweed with even solo cups with a little bitty hole in the bottom. And I save all of my gallon jugs, milk jugs, water jugs, whatever. And I cut the top off and leave just the hinge where the handle is, cut it in half. Fill it full of soil and plant my milkweed seeds out there. You can start doing it in the next couple of weeks. I leave the tape it back. I use duct tape and tape around it and write the species on it. And uh, leave the cap. Don't go on it. And water can come in. They're protected. They can start growing. And uh, by early spring, I'm ready to put out new growth of milkweed outside. But with a peat pack, the reason you don't want to do that is the milkweed's going to shoot up fast and it's going to have a long root. It's not got very far to go and it will fall over and you'll have a whole big tray of milkweed that has crashed on you. They really need to grow in a lot of soil. I'll use a plastic fork and uh, dig them out when they're big enough for me to transplant the weather's right. I'll have my place prepared for them, and I, I just take a fork and take them out one or two at a time and transplant them and put them in my yard. And that's the way to make milkweed survive. It's it's not as simple as throwing seeds because the wind's going to get them, birds going to get them, and uh, they rarely will make it overwintering. You know, you want to help them along. You're starting them now, and then how many months or days before you put it outside, and then what kind of weather does it need to be outside? I won't put my young plants out until the end of April, you know, until all danger of frost is passed. Because they're tender. And, you know, around March and April is when the sturdy ones start popping out of the ground. So these are very tender, and you, you're going to have to harden them off okay. a little. So what I do with my milk jugs, and I just I just line milk jugs. My backyard looks horrible. I line milk jugs up with them everywhere, water bottles, you name it. I cut the tops off, stick a two or three seeds in a regular little 12-ounce water bottle and duct tape around it and write on the side what it is and set it out there. It can get cool, sun warms it up. It mimics really the winter, but you're controlling and keeping your eye on your plants, Mm -hmm. you know. But um, then I wait and I put them out later in April uh, when, uh, you know, no really hard frost is going to hit them because when you take them out, they're really not hardened off that well. And they they need a little baby. Mm -hmm. And I'm able to make sure they don't dry out too fast. How do you harvest the seed? Well, what I do, you'll be able to see your milkweed pods start to pop and they get ready to pop open. And they have the little silk on each seed that sends them out flying through the air. So you want to grab them 
Uh, what I do like to do, and I can keep milkweed beetles off of them. They love to eat them, and they love to eat the whole seed pot up. I put the little pantyhose and tie little panty, little knee-high pantyhose mm-hmm. on them, and that will keep them from all flying away. So a lot of times that's how I collect them. And if I see them pop open and the little brown seeds about to hightail it on me, I grab those, put them in an envelope and a little, you know, just regular mail envelopes and paper and seal them up and write the species the plant is on them. And I overwinter them in the refrigerator till this time of year when I'm ready to get them out and get them in some soil. Yeah. And you could buy some really good starter soil at various nurseries and so forth. But milk jugs and water jugs and that type of stuff, you, you're giving it an element of protection, but your, your seed is getting some cold weather, too, out here. They'll start sprouting really fast <laughs> in early March. Even if there's snow on the ground, you'll see them. But they're, they warm up from the sun in the plastic jugs. And actually, the clear versus opaque is better. Yeah, I like yeah. to buy water in the... You know, you'll get the water in the clear jugs. Very inexpensive to buy just water in clear that jugs. Jug, huh? I like to get. I like to use those a lot, just so I can. Collect How many the seeds jugs. would you put in a gallon? And you can grow quite a few milkweed in one. Ten or twelve. At least sometimes too many. Oh yeah, you know they're tiny, so you have to be careful. But gallon jug will grow ten milkweed. Easy. What are some of your favorite butterflies? I mean, which which ones really get you excited? You know the monarch. We talked about that. But uh, I think my number two favorite of all is pipe vine swallowtail. It is host specific to a pipe vine plant. It is a vine, of course, and it's on the back of my fireplace. And I can sit and watch the pipe vine when she comes in and starts laying eggs. And I make videos of her. That butterfly, the male is a black with a the color of the Caribbean velvet back on it the most beautiful butterfly and it lays a patch of little eggs and they're burgundy looking on the back of the leaf and when those things start growing they are so comical because you can hear them eating they're a ferocious big caterpillar big as my thumb and they're uh, uh, black with reddish looking dots on them and they are amazing and you can hear them eat i promise they just gnaw my pot vine plant to the ground. They are so ferocious. They actually are cannibals. They run out of food. They'll eat each other. Yes, and I I don't know of any other butterfly that does that. That butterfly, oh my goodness, what a beautiful butterfly. Tell you something interesting in my backyard. Birds, of course, can't eat monarchs. They won't go near them because they're distasteful. Actually, they make them deathly ill and actually Uh vomit. They won't touch the caterpillars. They won't touch the uh, butterfly either. So when you have a lot of monarchs, you're going to spend a lot of black butterflies. Birds won't go near them. So when you have a lot of black butterflies, and I have uh, I have those pipe vines, I have uh, black swallowtails, and I have the giant swallowtails with a whole lot of black, much black. So my tiger swallowtails, you know, the male is beautiful yellow with black. He's, he's quite large, and he's the Georgia State butterfly. He will morph and become blacker and blacker. I will have less male yellows. The females come in more of a black or blue and very little yellow. They're not quite as beautiful as the male, but because of that, they morph because 
I have a lot of black. Mm-hmm. So they're protected from birds in my backyard. It's just fascinating to know that they do that. I have that giant yellow tiger swallowtail that barely has any yellow at all. It's morphed and gotten so black. And I, that is just fascinating to me. Of course, I love the tiger swallowtail. But then uh, I have also a uh, spice bush swallowtail. And uh, obviously, spice bush is a Georgia native shrub. And also, they'll lay their eggs on a sassafras. So if you have a sassafras tree, they love that mm-hmm. too. But um, they, uh, they're they another beautiful butterfly that you can spot them in your backyard because they're the swallowtail that's nervous. That's what I like to tell people, how you can identify the spice bush. Her back, she doesn't relax and let you see how beautiful the bluish gray velvety mm-hmm. back is on that butterfly. The back of the wings are so beautiful and they're a light bluish gray. But if you try to figure out and identify, that is one good way. Of course, you know, swallowtails, they're, they're all, they're right down there on the list. Every swallowtail species are just magnificent, but the uh, spice bush is a major fluttering. She's nervous. Uh, that's what kids will say. Miss Gill, how do you know that's a spice tail? And I'll say, well, you see how nervous she is? She won't be still and she won't keep her wings still. <laughs> no. So that's how I identify, you, you know, because you can't always see the back of that one's wings and tail because she doesn't relax that much like she does here. But uh, yeah, that pipe vine, Next to that, of course, the uh, the giant swallowtail. I'm telling you, there's nothing like it. And to have it come up this far from Florida in our backyard, it's a South Georgia butterfly. Yeah. It is the largest butterfly in Georgia, the very biggest. And it is massive, six to eight inch wingspan. Wow. That's a big I don't know butterfly. if I've ever seen that. And it is. He has, I call butterflies all she's, but she has a um, wide band of yellow coming at an angle on the back yeah. of each wing. I have a hop tree for her and I have prickly ash. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, Indians called it the toothache tree. And old folks did too. Well, that is a, uh, it's the entire trunk, bark, everything has thorns and it grows to be a massive tree. Yeah. But um, that one and the hop tree, our tiger swallowtails will lay their eggs on as well. And if they've never truly seen a tiger swallowtail caterpillar and they look at it in a picture and look at it online, they think, you know, yeah, that's a caterpillar. But, uh, you know, it was a long time into my growing up years and, and watching Mama raise flowers and growing the passion for flowers that she instilled in all, all three of us girls. But that caterpillar... Mm-hmm is uh we're talking eight to ten inches massive that's a huge caterpillar for me that is the biggest caterpillar i've ever seen in my life is that the one that eats that's the pipeline that is just the that's our tiger swallowtail our common georgia state butterfly that's the biggest caterpillar and it's green it's huge and that's a tiger and it is a huge i have pictures of it creeping on a uh, limb and at night it folds the leaves of a hop tree around its body and uses a little webbing of silk to hold it and hide it for the nighttime. It's just it's just fascinating. Needless to to say, I never cease being fascinated with these uh, this life cycle. Mm-hmm. 
when you go to buy a new shrub, get it native. I think most garden centers will get you these things. That's what I try to encourage people to do. I mean, I understand. I couldn't afford to go out here and take down every non-native thing I had. Mm -hmm. A few things that aren't invasive and noxious invasive are fine. I've got camellias. Add a little something new. Think, now, what should I put there? Shouldn't this be something that the butterflies would lay their eggs on? Because it would blow people's minds, the trees and shrubs, if they could add that are gorgeous and would be just as pretty and would uh, be a home and a food source. Not just native butterflies, but also birds and all insects. That's usually, you know, what I try to encourage people to do because I certainly understand that you can't just a clean slate, and it it doesn't require it. Pick a spot in your yard, bright sunshine, find a good most-of-the-day sun, the smallest place or the largest you think you can handle, and designate that the spot this spring you're going to start a butterfly garden. Thank you, Gail Woody, for sharing your expertise and inspiration. I've already started my milkweed, and I'm looking forward to having butterflies in my garden. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Be well, keep on designing, building, and and growing a smarter garden that works. This is episode two of the Garden Question podcast. Gail Woody is an expert in enticing butterfly kaleidoscopes to her garden. She knows what they like and how to keep them happy year-round. She has been studying these flying jewels for many years and regularly attracts up to 38 different species to her garden. 
Monarch butterflies are regular visitors twice a year on their migration track from Mexico and Canada. In this episode, Gail will also tell us how to attract and keep all the local butterflies coming to your place, some with 6 to 8 inch wingspans and stories about giant 8 to 10 inch caterpillars. Gail has been gardening for over 30 years. She creates the perfect ecosystem that includes butterflies, hummingbirds, native plants, water features, and more. Her passion for gardening is contagious. After listening to this episode, there will be no excuses not to start building your own butterfly paradise. Gail Woody is an ISA certified arborist and a seasoned advanced master gardener. She speaks and writes on butterflies, hummingbirds, native plants, among other garden subjects. If you want to learn how to attract your personal butterfly kaleidoscope, that today's podcast is perfect for you. 